Well, welcome to our broadcast today, The Wonderful Words of Life, where for the next 30 minutes we're going to be studying the Word of God together. We are in 1 Corinthians and we'll be in chapter 11 this time. But before we begin, let's hear from the psalmist. Notice what the psalmist says in Psalm 145. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you, and they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless you today. We thank you for the courage and the encouragement that we always have uh, through the precious blood of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we want to thank you for the word of God today. Your word is a sharp two-edged sword, and it pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So, Father, as we open up our heart to you, we ask you, Father, to fill us with wisdom and revelation that comes uh, from your word, and we'll give you the praise, honor, and glory for it. In the wonderful, powerful name of Jesus, Amen and amen. Well, praise God. As I said earlier, we are in chapter 11, and I've entitled this chapter, Conduct in Worship and Communion. The first portion of this chapter concerns things that we should be doing, and the second chapter, the second half of this chapter, rather, concerns things we must be doing. So the first half of this chapter deals with proper conduct and decorum in a worship service, which includes the celebration of communion or the celebration of the Eucharist. And as I said earlier, this chapter is divided in two halves. And so we're going to see that worship is the main subject of this chapter. And how we address the issues of decorum and conduct is going to depend upon our inward attitude towards standards. And of course, when it comes to the celebration of the Eucharist, we really need to understand that communion is more than just a ritual. It is a holy time. It's a time where we remember the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. That's why I firmly believe that our Sunday morning services should be centered around communion. They should be centered around whether we're preaching or whether we're teaching. Our service should be centered around Christ and the work that he did for us on the cross, being justified by his resurrection, and the fact when he was raised from the dead, then by faith we can be raised from the dead. And of course, we want to get into uh, covenant a little bit today. I think maybe we need to be reminded of what a covenant means and how important covenants are, especially when we're talking about the new covenant that we are in right now, Uh, through our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and begin. We'll be in uh, chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Notice Paul writes, and he says, Be ye followers of me, as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. Today's English version writes, or reads, I praise you because you always remember me and follow the teachings that I have handed on to you. So we see the Corinthian church is willing to follow 
uh, the path that Paul has laid down. They just don't always do it exactly the way they should. There's a lot of uh, lacking of wisdom uh, and spiritual maturity in that church, but their heart is in the right place. And that's true with a lot of new Christians that come into our fellowships in their mind, they may not be trained to where they can do things the way that they should be done, but their heart is in the right place. And so we need to have much patience and long suffering with them until they come to the place where they are able to uh, leave the milk of the word and begin to eat uh, the meat. Verse three says, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. We're talking now about the proper order within the church and within the home. And I think that if we'll just follow the word of God and if we'll just love God with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength and serve one another in true humility, we'll begin to understand that God's order is to be established not only within the home, but in the church. And so we see in verse three is the biblical order in the Christian home and in the church. The head of Christ is God himself. The head of the man or the husband is Christ. And the head of the woman or the um, wife is the man. That's God's order. That's how he established uh, the family. That's how he has established the church from the very inception, from the very beginning. Now, verse four says this. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman, verse five, that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. And I think the key word in verse four is the word dishonor. And this word, of course, it means uh, to shame. It means to disgrace, to do something that would be shameful. Uh, that would cause shame or to do something that would be disgraceful. So uh, the idea here in verse four is the fact that we don't want to do anything in a worship service that would cause uh, shame or that would be a dishonor to the leadership or to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So basically, this verse is teaching us that a man who dishonors his head brings dishonor to Christ. And a woman who dishonors her head brings dishonor to her husband. So the idea that a man or a husband will conduct himself in a worship service in an honorable way while he's praying or while he's preaching and teaching in a public form or in a church service. And I think this is very important, uh, a very important point to make because uh, much of the customs and traditions of the Christian church of the first century are not kept today. But the spirit and the attitude and the humility of these customs are just as relevant today as they were back then. So we are to conduct ourselves in a worship service in a way that is honorable, that does not cause shame or disgrace. But now there's something here in verse five that I want us to notice. I don't think we have spent a lot of time here. Notice the equality that Paul mentions between men and women in worship. Notice what he says, but every woman that prayeth, talking about public prayer, praying in an assembly, or prophesieth. Now, one of the um, definitions of prophesy is to preach. 
As a matter of fact, the word prophesying comes from the Greek word prophetuo, and it means to not just to foretell future events, but it also means to speak under an inspiration. And there is a note of prophecy and inspired utterance, especially when it's involving uh, public teaching and public preaching. So we see here that there is an equality within the church that uh, you would not find in Greek culture. You would not find it in Middle Eastern culture, in the Asian culture, women, especially in, um, in Jerusalem, in Israel. Women were not allowed to pray in public. They were not allowed to prophesy. They were not allowed to take the lectern and to teach and to preach. But yet we see here in the church that they have and they are even today that they're allowed to teach. And we have many fine women teachers and many fine women preachers. But now they're all under the authority of the man. A woman who is a teacher or a preacher is under the authority of the pastor who is uh, 99 times out of 100 is a man. And so I think that's very important uh, for us to understand that when it comes to God's order, remember now that the head of Christ is God himself. The head of man is Christ and the head of woman is the man or the husband. And as long as we stay within that standard of conduct and decorum, I think that the church will be benefited. I think the home will be benefited. It's when we get these this order out of whack and we begin to uh, be disorganized that we we find ourselves uh, in problems and in situations that really we shouldn't be in. Verse six, verse six says, for if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. Now, this is a custom of the time Paul wrote that women were to wear a head covering. But now we're going to find out as we go along here in the next few verses, really what Paul is talking about concerning a head covering. And I remember when I was a young boy, that women that came to church service, they always wore a hat. Hat, A hat uh, on a woman was very fashionable, but men wore hats also. But they would not wear hats to church service. Women would. Their heads, men's heads would be uncovered, but the women's heads would be covered. But that uh, custom is not so prevalent today, although there are uh, churches and denominations where the women do wear head coverings. And I think that's their standard. That's their custom. And I think that's perfectly fine. If you're a member of a church that doesn't have a standard when it comes to uh, a women's covering uh, over her head, then that's fine. Once again, th these are things that we should be doing, not things that we must do. We'll talk about that in a few moments. Now, notice the same attitude that's practiced by men is to be observed by women who are in exercise of public praying or of preaching and teaching. The covering of the head is a symbol. It's a symbol of humility and submission to God to his order that's in the church and in the home. And like I said earlier, women uh, today in most Western churches don't observe this custom. Uh, but now her head uncovered dishonored her head. Now that's talking about doing something that would be shameful or a disgrace. And at the time that Paul wrote this letter, 
for a woman to appear without a headdress or a covering. Now, we're going to get into specifics here, so I want you to listen to what I'm saying. That would be cause for a disgrace or to be dishonored. Uh, so men or women who are publicly praying, preaching or prophesying, if they do it in a haughty or ostentatious or a crude manner, and believe me, as long as I've been in the ministry and been in church services, I've seen a lot of men and also a lot of women who are preaching, who are teaching, and they do it in a haughty, ostentatious, and a crude manner. And that's really a dishonor to the leadership in that church. And so we should not be doing that. As a matter of fact, I remember going to a revival service, and the main speaker was a woman. And this woman was so filled with a, a feminist spirit and she got up and she started talking about how that she was just as good as her husband and she was just as good as any man. And in the middle of this ostentatious display, this haughty display, and she said this, she says, well, I know the Bible says that Sarah called Abraham Lord and I'm just going to have to have a talk with her when I get up into heaven. And I'm sitting in the pew and I'm listening to this. And it was such a disgrace. And I looked over at her husband and I looked over at the pastor of the church and both of their faces were as red as a tomato. They were embarrassed. They were humiliated and they were disgraced. And that's terrible. And listen, my wife and I, we didn't stay for the whole service. We left as soon as there was an opportunity for us to leave. We left and we made up our minds that uh, we'll never go listen to this woman preach again until she begins to develop a more humble spirit and gets uh, gains a greater knowledge of the word of God concerning order. Now, it was OK for her to get up and preach. It was not OK for her to humiliate or talk down to her husband or to the pastor of the church. And I'm getting to such an age that uh, I'm about ready to call people out for these things because it's just not right. You, th these things should not be done behind a pulpit and in the face of a church membership that really not wants to know and listen to and hear the word of God. That was definitely uh, a shame. It was definitely a disgrace. Verse seven says, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. And this is just God's order in the church. Now, look, look let's uh, read verse eight through twelve. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. Neither was the man created for a woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. The only thing that I can understand and equate with verse 10 is the fact that because of the angels, meaning that the angels are watching over what we do uh, in church service. That's the only reasonable explanation I have. Verse 11, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also of the woman. But all things are of God. So I think Paul is stating here that both are necessary. Both the woman and the man are necessary. Now, that's true in the home, but it's also true in church. 
that if the woman has a right to pray and to prophesy, let's do it according to God's standard. If a man is going to pray and prophesy in a worship service, let's do things according to God's standard. We should be doing this. Now, verse 13 says, judging yourselves, is it commonly that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Is it suitable or is it prosper? Is it proper? Is it suitable or is it proper? Amen. Now, there is an acceptable way in which a woman is to conduct herself in public. And this applies also to a man. Now, look at verses 14 and 15. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. So, here we are in the 15th verse, and now we begin to understand what Paul is really talking about here concerning conduct and decorum in a public worship service. That a woman is not to shave her head. Her hair is to be long. And a man, it is okay for him to have long hair as long as his hair is not longer than a woman's hair. But then again, this is a custom. It's not a command. It's not a law. And I know that there are many holiness churches. Listen, I, I've been in the holiness movement now. I've been I've moved within the holiness ranks for the last 50 years. And I know that there are holiness churches that really don't have a lot of standard when it comes to uh, the length of hair. Now, there's a lot that do. There's a lot have very strict guidelines and very strict standards concerning hair. And really, when you think about it, how you keep your hair sends a message to other people as to who you think you are. And if I'm walking down the street and I see a woman with long, straight hair down halfway uh, down her back, and my first inclination is, well, that's a woman that's a member of the holiness movement, because that's the way most holiness women wear their hair. Now, I may be right. I may be wrong. Now, there are women that I've seen that have had their hair cut as short. I mean, a shortcut shorter than a man. And of course, that sends a message. And so if we're going to observe proper conduct and decorum, then we need to um, have our hair cut, have it dressed that is attractive and that for a woman to wear her hair, she's going to wear her hair for the glory of man. Uh, a man is going to wear his hair for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then again, these are customs. These are not laws and commands. As a matter of fact, if you'll search in the Old Testament, you'll find very little uh, what the Old Testament has to say about the length of hair. And so uh, we just need to observe these things. If you're in a church that has a standard as far as dress and as far as uh, the style of hair, then you stay within that standard. And if they require a man to have short hair and you have long hair and you don't want to cut your hair, then go find a church that doesn't have that same kind of strict standard. And we do. Why do we do this? Well, because in love, we serve one another. We submit to one another. We always are submissive to authority. Now, we have a right to disagree when authority is scripturally wrong. But in this area of dress, this area of uh, the way we keep our hair, uh, 
It's a custom. Amen. It's not something that we must do. It's something that we should do. And I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. In verse 16, he says, But if any man seem to be contentious or argumentative, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is it natural for a man to wear makeup? Well, no. Is it natural for a man to wear a woman's dress? Absolutely not. There are certain standards within Christian society, and these standards need to be observed. There are some churches, as I said before, that they expect their men to wear their hair short. There's other churches that place no restriction whatsoever on the length of hair. Only do what is natural. Don't have hair longer than a woman's hair. Keep it cropped. Keep it looking nice. Amen. Because that is a message that you want to send uh, to other people, especially the fact that you're a born again believer. Amen. That you're doing things that is proper conduct. Amen. Now, it, but if anyone wants to argue, this is the TEV translation of verse 16. But if anyone wants to argue about it, all I have to say is that neither we nor the churches of God have any other custom in worship. And of course, we're talking about the worship service. All right. Now, those are things that we should do. Now we're going to talk about the things we must do. And we begin now in verse 17. Notice now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that they be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. And of course, we go all the way back to chapter three, and Paul addresses this issue. And now here he is, he's talking about again in verse and chapter 11. Notice he said in chapter three, for ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Now, verse 19 says, For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Heresies, factions, disunity. And there are, and there do exist, factions within the church that they come together for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to get what they want. And of course, these factions cause problems within a church. Uh, these disagreements, uh, they become divisions within the church, and they actually wind up splitting churches. And it's these heresies that excite the pride in individuals, and they weaken the church. James says this. He says, for envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. And Paul actually calls heresies in Galatians chapter 5 factions. And so moving on in verse 20, when you come together, therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper, or this is not to observe the memorial of the communion table. For in eating, everyone takes before the other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. The Living Bible says, I am told that everyone hastily gobbles all the food he can without waiting to share with the others so that one doesn't get enough 
and goes hungry while another has too much to drink and gets drunk. Isn't that something? Can you imagine that in a communion service today? What? Verse 22. Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? And what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Now, verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Notice that Paul's knowledge of the Last Supper came by direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me, or as a memorial to me. Verse 26, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. So the Lord's Supper is a regular reminder of the sacrifice of Christ, his death on the cross for our sin until he returns. It is a memorial. Now, what is a memorial? A memorial is a reminder of our new covenant that we have through the sacrifice of Christ. And notice I said new covenant. Well, what is a covenant? A covenant is a cut. It's an agreement. It is made between two individuals. And once that agreement is solemnized, it becomes an unbreakable, an immutable, an unalterable agreement between two or more persons. Now, let me go ahead and say this right now, because I told you that I have been in the holiness ranks for quite some time. There are extreme holiness that think if you commit one sin, you're going to go to hell. If you cut your hair, you're going to hell. If you put on makeup, you're going to hell. If you wear a dress that's above your knees, you're going to hell. Even though you're sick, if you miss the church service, you're going to hell. If you look at a woman in a, in a way that's not right for just a moment and then you correct yourself you're, and then you were to die, suddenly you would go to hell. This is heresy. And people who espouse this type of doctrine do not understand covenant. Notice what I said about the new covenant. It forms an unbreakable, immutable, unalterable agreement between two or more persons. Let me tell you something. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We do sin. We don't sin as a way of life, but there are exceptions. We sin as exceptions. But I want to tell you something, that your weakness, your failure, my weakness, and my failure is not stronger than the covenant that we've entered into through the precious blood of Christ. As a matter of fact, it's very almost impossible for you or I to lose our salvation. The only way that we could is if we apostatize, turn our back on Christ, treat the blood of Christ as an unholy thing, and never go back, never intend to go back to Christ. Backsliders, amen, backsliders have not committed the unpardonable sin. Those who commit apostasy have. And I think that's biblical, and I think we can prove that from the Scriptures. 
All right, now going back to a covenant. A covenant, when cut, it includes promises, terms, conditions. And also a covenant includes a sign, which is usually a cut where blood flows. And communion is a renewal, a memorial, a remembrance of this covenant that we have through Christ. Now, the covenant also included walking in between two pieces of flesh where blood has flowed. And in our covenant that we have of Christ, those two elements are the bread, which is the body of Christ, represents, signifies the body of Christ, and the fruit of the vine, which signifies the blood of Christ. So when we come together and we take communion, we are remembering, remembering now the covenant that we have cut with the Lord Jesus Christ. It was his cut, our faith in his blood that was shed that causes us to enter into that covenant. And then verse 27 says this, and we're closing here. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation unto himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So we have to examine ourselves and know what we're doing. And verse 31 says, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Finally, the Living Bible says, if anyone is really hungry, he should eat at home so that he won't bring punishment upon himself. And so it's very important that when we partake of communion, we remember this is something that we must do. We remember the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a ritual. It's a renewal of the covenant that we have with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we bless you. Thank you for this time in the Word of God. We ask you, Lord, to bless everyone within the sound of my voice, and we give you praise, honor, and glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you were to die today, that you would be prepared for heaven? If you're not sure, then I encourage you to pray this prayer with me. Father God, I come to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. I repent and ask you to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I surrender my heart and life to you. By faith, I believe I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And I thank you for receiving me in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed this prayer and desire to know more about the gift of Christ that the Heavenly Father offers you, then email us at rbtc86 at gmail.com. We will be glad to answer your questions promptly and provide you at your request with materials that will help you to grow in your faith in the Lord Jesus. This is Patsy Dunning. Thank you for listening to our broadcast today. And let me remind you to tune in to this station at the same time next week to hear more of the wonderful words of life. 
God bless you and remember what Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life.